Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe Stoll. I'm very excited to bring you this exciting, but not very happy, episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. In this episode, we will discuss Chapter 23 of Tour and the Fall of Gondolin. This short chapter has a lot packed into it, and it involves many things falling from great heights. And yes, of course, Balrogs are included in this because they don't have physical wings that they fly with, only shadows that look like wings. Anyway, let me give you some examples of topics that we discuss. The childhood of Tuor, how humbly he was brought up, and also how different his childhood was from that of his cousin, Turin. We discuss how Tuor received the short end of the stick at first, and became a slave at a young age. There is a brief recap of some elven geography. We also take a look at how this chapter may or may not reflect different writing styles of Tolkien. How Turgon flat refuses the message from Ulmo, and ultimately turns on help from the West. We also discuss different elf women and male men relationships throughout Tolkien's works. We go in-depth into the fall of Gondolin and discuss whether or not Turgon dies as a coward, how Maeglin mirrors his dad, and how Mist can be mournful. I hope you enjoy these topics, and all of the others that we jump into in this episode, which is titled, Maeglin, The Apple Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree. Okay, good evening everyone. I here interrupt myself uh, in order to bring you myself. Um, hi, this is Corey Olson. We are going to begin the live broadcast of this week's episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Uh, I actually kind of hate to interrupt the rebroadcast of our announcement show for the Mythgard Institute last night, um, but that's okay. It will be on again later on. Um, so, uh, but tonight we bring you something different. We are on to Tuor and the fall of Gondolin. Another week, another mighty civilization falls in the latter part of the Quintus Ulmerillion. Um, and so, uh, without further ado, let us, uh, let us get into our discussion of the text here. Um, we are... We start with Tuor. Now, with the beginning of Tuor's story, we return back to after the Nirnaith Arnoidiad, and therefore uh, those of us who have, having had almost a month of Turin and family in between, uh, might not recall that. So let's, of course, start by recalling the apposite details that we will want to we will want to recall. That is, we remember that Tuor is the son of Huor, who is the brother of Hurin, and although Hurin was the one who survives and... Um, and remains in uh, in in you know and is is taken to to Angband, Huor is shot in the head uh, at the end of that battle and dies. But you will recall his significant prophecy that he makes to Turgon, and we'll go back and look at that. But anyway, he uh, so Tuor is his son, and you will recall also that at the very beginning of the chapter on Tur and Turambar, we are told that Rian, who is Tuor's mom. Upon hearing of the death of Huor and almost everybody else in the near Nithar Nordiad, goes and lays herself down upon the hill of slain and dies. So now we have Tuor growing up as uh, growing up as an orphan. Um, and I guess my first question with Tuor, the 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 first thing that we see obviously is sort of the parallels, or at least the potential parallels between Turin and Tuor. You know, we've got these guys who are cousins. Um, both of whom are, you know, T names after their dad's H names. And uh, so, and we, we, you know, the obvious family connection. And, you know, so looking at both of them as uh, sort of quasi-orphans, uh, Tuor literally uh, an orphan, and uh, Turin sort of, um, well, anyway, his 
early life, rather complicated by the near knife. Um, but we see them both put in a similar situation. What did you guys notice or think about the differences? We spent some time talking about Turin's uh, childhood and his situation when he was a kid. Um, what did you make of Tour's situation? How do you think? Um, how do you think? They're different. What is, is is there anything that you see? Because I mean, it sort of seems like if anything, Tour has a crappier childhood than Turin does, um, and yet he doesn't seem to uh, to turn out quite so badly uh, as Turin. What do you make of that? Any thoughts, Laura? Go ahead. Well, we don't hear t- too much about it, really, other than he was um, after he was orphaned. He was raised by the elves. We don't have much of a description of um, of how he was raised, so I guess we have to infer from that it was pretty uneventful childhood. So, um, yeah, I mean, and yeah, I mean, yeah, we just don't have we just don't have a lot to go on. But it seems that Tuar Tuar is not quite as his personality isn't as strong as Turin's. I guess I would say. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly that. That's certainly, I think, a safe thing to say, and and actually, you know, uh, Laura, just to, to to comment on that, you know, that we just don't have all that much information. We're going to be confronted by that at many points. This chapter is incredibly short, incredibly short. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not as short as some of these short chapters that we've seen before. I, I mean, it's fully what seven pages, but you know. This is a long story, and I think of all the places, we've commented at many points about how condensed these things are. I mean, there have been several times I remember, for instance, in the Dagor Bragalach chapter and everything that we were saying, you know, gosh, this whole, there's so, uh, so many of these paragraphs in there that could be a whole novel, um, you know, and we get this sense of long, heroic, and complex stories being surveyed for us in, in just in just a couple paragraphs. Um, in this chapter, I find that to be rather extreme. Um, that is, uh, uh, it's, it's, I, I, the, that sense of compression. And, of course, that's assisted by the fact that this is one of the stories that Tolkien has written other versions of, and they're quite long. Uh, you know, the, the, this is one of the first of the Lost Tales that Tolkien wrote um, back in when he was in the Book of the Lost Tales version. This is one of the first things that he did when he came back from World War One and was recovering in the hospital from trench fever, and you know, and he and th- which, which was a pretty long recovery process for him because he kept relapsing. Fortunately, or else he would have been sent back to France. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the things that he was doing in hospital was was writing the story of 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 the fall of Gondolin. And the version that he wrote then is very, very long. Um, and, well, I mean, certainly long compared to this. We get quite a few details of his childhood and his escape from slavery and the time when he's wandering and his discovery of Vinyamar. Um, a long description of the the sort of carefully guarded and many-gated entry into, into the Valley of Gondolin. Um, the battle... 
of the fall of Gondolin is the longest sustained description of a battle anywhere in Tolkien's corpus. We get full details. You want to see, uh, you, you know, c- uh, combats in which lots of uh, lots of Balrogs are killed. Um, I'd read the fall of Gondolin in the Book of Lost Tales. It is, uh, it is. There, uh, you know, Balrogs are going down all over the place. Um, there are dozens of Balrogs that attack the city, and many of them are, and, and many of them are killed. Um, anyway, so it's, it's, it's. And we get you know long descriptions of the different um, the different uh, the different sort of heraldic emblems of each of the houses of the Gondolindrim and who leads them and what their characters are and uh, anyway so it's just it's 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 quite long and quite rich and quite detailed and so that certainly if if one is familiar with that at all it's it's uh, it's it's a bit of a shock to come to this shorter version um, one of the reasons of course that I uh, one of the one of the reasons that I bring this up now is that I'm not going to want to talk about that too much. I mean, discussing the Book of Lost Tales version would be very interesting, but you know, I'm not assuming everyone's read the Book of Lost Tales version, and you know, I don't want to focus on that too much, especially if not all of us have read it. But um, I just wanted to kind of mention that in passing, because on a sort of generalized style time point, I think that the 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 rapidity with which this chapter sort of sails over long epochs in Tuor's life and and uh, and and um, you know major parts of the story, I think, are really interesting. I think that this is um, uh, some very interesting choices. Therefore, um, that that Tolkien and Christopher together are making in uh, in working this out. But uh, we were talking about comparing with Turin and Joe. I think you wanted to to, to make before I. Digress. I wanted to get that digression over with uh, at the beginning here, so I didn't have to launch into it later on. But Joe, go ahead. All right. Uh, am I good, sound wise? Yes, Let's you go. are. Very good. All right. Now, um, it's just it's interesting. Uh, Tour lives a much more humble life than Torin. Um, like he, he even like lives with the elves for the first part of his life, similar to Torin. But uh, I mean, you don't hear a whole lot about him. And then uh, I mean, it's and obviously the gray elves are not as grand as. Uh, you know, the elves of uh, Doriath, I mean, because there's a Maiar there. I mean, that just kind of over- overwhelms anything. And then a big, big turning point is instead of getting his freedom and doing what he wants to do, uh, he ends up becoming a slave. And, uh, I mean, after that, it just you, it seems like that you can really tell that would define the two characters on the different paths, kind of. Not that they're both not great, but uh, attitude-wise and the way they act, I mean, you can just see a totally different path being taken here. And, uh, I mean... It's almost that he seems more selfless, and uh, that's difficult to say, because, I mean, Torin was so great, I mean, he just kind of, he had to lead, whether he liked to or not. At times, he should have stepped down, but that's besides the point. Um, and uh, But Tour just kind of being on his own, I mean, it really worked out for him. Yeah, and it, it is interesting that, you know, if you just read that first paragraph, it really sounds like Tour's childhood really was worse. He is, as you I mean, Joe, I think you, you you make a really good point. Even the similarity does seem to point out a difference. That is, they're both taken to foster by gray elves um, as children. But yet, you know, you've got on the one hand Turin, who is taken in by Thingol and raised in the in the most splendid of all of the gray elves' dwellings uh, in Middle Earth, and he is treated like the like the son of the king. Um, of Doriath, and Tuor is just is taken in by this random gray elf, um, you know this uh, who's never named again. We don't know anything about him, and uh, and is then held as a slave. Um, and it, it's it is it's it's not 
near he, he doesn't have the kind of Turin had it good in comparison. Dave, go ahead. I was wondering if you could for for us and the listeners. Um, I was skimming through the text again as you were talking and looking at some of the locations that we mentioned, and some of them are ringing a bell, even though I don't quite remember um, what exactly they're. I remember them coming up later, um, like Vinyamar and Nevras and things like that. So maybe we could quickly review the important things that happened there um, uh, uh, so we can connect the events of Tuar to the events of the past. Yeah, it's um, it, it's a good idea, certainly, because the problem that we get here, um, the, the advantage that we have in reading the Silmarillion in the way that we have, which is slowly and carefully, um, you know, has been that we've been able to, to, to really look very carefully at things as we go along. But it also means that things from early in the book are now a very, very long time ago. Um, so I think that that's a good idea. We will recall, doubtless, that is, I should say, we will recall from our favorite chapter of Beleriand and its realms that when Turgon first settled down uh, in Beleriand uh, after his arrival, he built a city on the coast called Vinyamar. So Nevrast is the name of the, 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 the land over by the coast, the kingdom, basically, the country that, that Turgon settled in. And he built his capital city, which was called Vinyamar. Um, so, so Turgon built Vinyamar in Nevras. Now, also remember, we were told at the time that one of the things which made Turgon's realm different uh, from most of the other realms of the Noldor was the fact that more Grey Elves lived there than in any other kingdom of the Noldor. And in the land of Turgon did uh, the blending of Noldor and Sindar happen most thoroughly. Um, so we had Grey Elves and Noldor living in living in cooperation and in harmony in Nevrast with the capital city of Vinyamar. Then, of course, we remember, I don't doubt, the that the event of Olmo's warning... Right when Omo appears in a dream to both Finrod and to Turgon on that day they were hanging out together and says, "Hey, why don't you guys build a build a secret fortress, a secret stronghold?" And this leads Finrod ultimately to build Nargothrond, and it leads Turgon ultimately to build Gondolin, and he built Gondolin in secret, sneaking his you know workmen into. Uh, into Tumladen, into the 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 the, the valley inside uh, the mountains there, and they build Gondolin, and then all of his people from Nevrast and Vinyamar slowly and secretly sneak across the continent and uh, into Gondolin, and they close it up behind them, and they leave their city of Vinyamar um, empty on the coast. So no one has lived there ever since the Gondolindrum left. Now, um, you may also remember Olmo spoke again to to Turgon and told him that he would someday send a messenger to him in Gondolin. And he gave specific instructions to Turgon. He said, leave a suit of armor uh, here in Vinyamar. This is how you will know the messenger when he comes. You will. This is how you will know he comes from me. He will be wearing this armor that you leave here. And Omo gave him specs. Um, that is, he gave him instructions on exactly what size to build the armor so that... Uh, so that Turgon, because that is, you know, Olmo knew who was going to come. So he gave him like two wars future measure body measurements um, so that he could make the armor that was designed for Tuor and to hang it there in Vinyamar. And then uh, Tuor, of course, discovers it when he comes here to uh, to 
to visit Vinyamar. Now, do you guys remember who Veronwe was? Um, Tuor meets Veronwe. Do you recall him that we, we did get a reference to him several chapters back? Laura, you recall? Well, I don't recall exactly, but uh, inferring from what we have here, wasn't he one of the ones that Turgon sent out in a ship to uh, to uh, try to uh, speak to the Valar and, and get some aid for the elves in Middle-earth? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, this was one of the other little tidbits that we got about Turgon and Gondolin kind of... Uh, crammed around the details of the other stories that we've been looking at in the other in the other chapters and we've been kind of ignoring those until we got to now to sort of look at how uh what was going on with the gondolindrum together um and yes that was it was turgon who was sending his mariners down the river syrian in secrecy and then they were setting forth from down near the isle of balar and they were trying to get back across to valinor to ask for help and pardon of the Valar. Now, recall, again, when we talked about Turgon way back, about especially that moment with Turgon and Finrod, one of the things we were emphasizing there was that those two, Turgon and Finrod, were sort of the most westerly facing of all the elves. Of, of, of all of the captains of the Noldor, they were the ones who seemed to be most oriented back towards Valinor, whether it be in small things, like, for instance, the, def- the detail that Finrod brought with him more treasures out of Valinor than any of the other Noldoran princes, or whether it is uh, the way that Gondolin is set up. Recall that Gondolin built on its little uh, its little hill makes it sound uh, a little too cute. Built on its hill in the valley was a memory of Elven Tyrion, and we were sort of seeing the ways in which Turgon was dedicating this place. You know, was was really thinking back to their home in Valinor, and he built those replicas of the two trees, um, the silver tree and the gold tree, to recall the trees of Valinor. Um, so, you know, we could see the ways in which he was thinking about Valinor. Both of them were thinking, but especially Turgon. And then he was the one, he was the only one who was thinking, okay, hey, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should head back, uh, towards Valinor and see if the Valar will help, will actually help us. And Veronwe was on the last shipload of mariners that, uh, that Turgon sent back into the West. Um, so that's, um, that's, that's Veronwe's story. And I think it's really important for us to remember the context of that. That is the context that, um, Veronwe had been sent as a messenger, uh, to, to the Valar. And so, when you sort of think about the story from Veronwe's standpoint, um, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. But uh, uh, yeah, Laura, you had a you had a question about sort of Tuor and his relationship with uh, with with Olmo here and Veronwe. Um, just wanted to give you a chance to ask that. I think it's a really interesting question. Are you there, Laura? I am, and I'm trying to remember my question. <laughs> it was just about. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it it just uh, tour. I mean, is he just picked to be the instrument of Ulmo? Um, you know, it, it, was he just picked at random? Uh, or I mean, it's just not clear why tour is picked. You know, I mean, you could see somebody like Baron or somebody like Turin, who has this real strong, forceful personality. But uh, Tuor um, just seems to be, you know, pretty level-headed guy, actually. So, so I was just curious uh, why Oma would have picked him. 
Yeah, it's well. I mean, and I don't think it's necessarily. Uh, well, I mean, in that form, in some ways, it's sort of impossible to answer that. That is, you know, what was it about Tuor? Well, we don't know, but what we do know is he is selected in advance. You know, if there are any of the stories um, in the Silmarillion thus far which really bring up, consistently bring up the issue of prophecy and destiny, it's this one. Um, Remember that this story has its... uh, well, that's not, I was going to say this story has its germ in a prophecy. That's not quite the right way to say it. The role of Tuor's well, character does. Go, go ahead, Laura. Yeah, well, the other thing I was thinking is, you know, his father is the brother of Corrin, mm-hmm. and maybe it's it's more of a family thing, you know, this, this whole family is fated, you know, for good or ill. Um, yeah. So maybe yeah. It's, it's the relation there that's that's important. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that we can kind of connect this back to the first part of the discussion that we were having, that is the comparison between Tuor and Turin. And uh, both of them have strong dooms laid upon them. Turin's is a horrible doom. Tuor's is not like a pleasant, cheerful, happy doom, um, but he is di- he is doomed, he is destined um, to be an agent of deliverance. Um I mean, he, it's, it all starts with Huor's prophecy to Turgon uh, in the Near Nith Arnoidiad when, when Huor and Hurin say they're going to cover the retreat of the Gondolindrim. Um, I would just recall this on page 194. Huor spoke and said, yet if it's, it's referring to Gondolin, yet if it stands but a little while, then out of your house shall come the hope of elves and men. This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death, though we part here forever, and I shall not look on your white walls again. From you and from me a new star shall arise. Farewell. And that, so that's one prophecy. The other prophecy, of course, again, was Olmo's own prophecy. There shall come one who shall come to the halls of Vinyamar, and he shall find this armor that you make, and here is what he will look like, and he will come to you with a message. Um, So, I mean, from every side... Tuor has this, you know, there's there's literally this um this story that he's supposed to step into. I mean, he's got he's got this armor sitting there designed for him. Um Chris, go ahead. I guess I wanted to say that I'm we talk uh, somebody mentioned about uh, forceful personalities or something to that effect. I don't know that I I'm thinking that maybe he got um picked or whatever, um maybe because he I don't think he had a weak personality. He just wasn't an overbearing jerk like maybe his cousin was. Um, and maybe <laughs> the way he grew up with in the in the caves and then in slavery, he, he 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 grew up with a little bit more humility. And so I don't know that that translates into uh, a softer personality. <laughs> right, Jordan. I'm sure it's there. <laughs> right. Um, so that's. <laughs> Um, I gotta look, ignore the chat while I'm speaking. Yes, that's kind of that. crucial, especially when Jordan is chatting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I guess to the extent that somebody saw in advance of what type of uh, man he was going to be, um, you know, you t- as it turns out, he's a great leader too. But I guess maybe the humility that he has, uh, because of, I mean, he didn't, as you said, he didn't have an easy upbringing, but uh, um, it generated humility while. Turin had a great upbringing and a splendid place, and he had issues. Yeah, you know, and I think that that's it's it it is really fascinating in that way. I mean, on the one hand, you can say again, looking at Tuor's whole career, that he is possibly even more than Turin. 
um, the victim of destiny. Again, it's a different destiny. Um, it's a different doom that he faces, but it still is, there is a strong doom upon him. He has, even again, with Turin, we don't see from the beginning that there are path, there's a path laid out for him. Um, like at no point do, does the does the text suggest, well, at this certain point, Turin is going to come to this location, and when he comes here, he is going to do this. You know, we we are we know that a general doom of, you know, suffering is laid upon him, um, and that what he turns his hand to will turn to evil, but. Not the, not with the specificity, not with the, the the sort of the clear destiny. He's going to come here to this place, and when he does this, then he's it's going to be laid upon him to perform this task. Um, and yet, so although it seems in these ways, as I say, two wars even more uh, uh, a a a sort of a plaything of destiny. I think, Chris, you're right that we can see he seems to be making choices in his life which are different from Turin's, that, that he seems to be not necessarily just passively going along with it. Um, uh, and I think one of the things briefly that I would point to here is um, the the moment with the, with the swans. Uh, let's see. Yes. Um, the bottom of page 238... Then he dwelt in Nevrast alone, and the summer of that year passed. Tour has spent, I mean, apart from the time when he was being fostered, he has been alone most of his life. Um, so living in solitude, that's what Tour does. Then he dwelt in Nevrast alone, and the summer of that year passed, and the doom of Nargothron drew near. <laughs> that is, you know, his cousin was down south causing havoc. But when the autumn came, he saw seven great swans flying south, and he knew them for a sign that he had tarried over long, and he followed their flight along the shores of the sea. Now, think about the way in which that um, that one sentence shows these combination of things. That on the one hand, it's like he himself knows that his life is being controlled by destiny. He knew them for a sign that he had tarried over long. I am not following the path that I am supposed to follow. And yet, he's the one who's choosing. He's the one who follows their flight and realizes, I should not be just hanging out here. I should be going to do something. And he goes. Um, but anyway, okay, there's a long cue now. Uh, Dave, go ahead. So I have a question about um, the the turn of phrase that um, is used here, where um, it says that that um, Olmo. Let's see, where the heck is it? I'm looking for it. Looking for it. There we go. Almost said it in his heart to depart from the land of his fathers, for he had chosen Tour as the instrument of his designs. Um, that's that's wording seems sort of. And perhaps this is just my fuzzy memory from lack of sleep over the weekend about the rest of the book, but um, that that turn of phrase seems to be quite different from the kind of language that we have. I mean, I'm wondering if perhaps the story was written at a different time, or this version of the story was written at a different time from, for example, the Turin Turambar story we just read in other parts. But that seems like an unusually, it sounds very sort of contemporary Christian type of thing to say, the idea of a deity setting something in your heart and planting a feeling in your in, in you. And, you know, I mean, like, it's a very strange sort of direct intervention by one of the Valar. Not just simply, I mean, in some cases... Um, you have um, you have uh, uh, you know Umo appearing to people in dreams and saying, "Hey, you should go do this." 
But in this case, he actually puts a feeling or a desire into her heart. I mean, that, to me, that's a much more direct intervention. It's not simply going and saying, hey, you should go do this. He actually went into his heart and, and gave him a desire that, that, that probably started him down this path. And I'm just wondering, um, that, that strikes me as very different from the picture of the Valar's interactions with people um, um, uh, throughout the rest of the book. Uh, and so I was just wondering. To yeah, about that. no, I agree, and I don't think that it's just a stylistic thing either. Um, this is just the—that's the first of the many examples in this story where, especially Olmo. I mean, Olmo is this is like Olmo's story here. Um, I mean, this Olmo is an is a major player in this story. We haven't seen a, one of the Valar be a major player other than Morgoth um, in 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 any of these chapters for a long time. Olmo is all over this chapter, and he is all over Tuor's career, and and again, that's that's what I think. You know, and, and as far as the like laying it upon his heart, we do see him basically manipulating the feelings, as you say, of Tuor. But this isn't the only time. There is another time when he lays something upon his heart. That is, well, it, it, it's, it's not that it uses that exact same phrase, um, but that is his Tuor's relationship with the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, an unquiet was on him that took him at last into the depths of the realms of Omo. Um, right. Let's see. Uh, uh, looking upon Belagar, the great sea, he was enamored of it, and the sound of it and the longing for it were ever in his heart and ear, and an unquiet was on him that took him at last into the depths of the realms of Omo. So not only does he lay it in his heart to like start his trip, um, you know, to depart from the land of his fathers, it set it in his heart to depart from the land of his fathers. Who does that sound like, Jason? <laughs> does that remind you of anybody you wrote a paper about recently? I don't know if you have your microphone uh, on or, or not tonight, Jason, but uh, um, but uh, but but of course, I mean that's that's like again thinking, you know. Thinking, Dave, of what you were just saying about uh, Christian things, that there is a biblical parallel. I mean, that's like that's like uh, that's like Abraham um, leaving the land of his fathers. Um, so no, it's it's Olmo is inter- well, so so. What I'm Go wondering ahead. is what I'm wondering is after coming away from MythCon, especially Verlin Flieger's talk, where mm-hmm. you know she where she really delves into. Tolkien's development as a storyteller over the course of his life. It just gets me wondering why does this why is this seem so different from from other parts of the Silmarillion where where the Valar and even Ulmo are not directly intervening this way? Is it this particular story? Is it this point in history? Or could it be that Tolkien this version of this story Tolkien was writing at a different point in his life when he was taking things you know when he had, when he had changed his picture of the metaphysics of Arda and and the relationship of the Valar and that kind of stuff. So um, well, th- I'm wondering if that that could be an element here. Sort of, though. I mean, the the um, I think that those elements of this story, though, are there from the beginning. Like, I certainly don't think it's a question of um, well. And this is a hard thing to do with the Silmarillion, anyway, because. Well, that's what I, I was wondering. You know, I mean, yeah, it, it's not like it's there, linear. It may be dangerous to it may be dangerous to try and string the difference. You know, each of the chapters to, together because they weren't written to be a continuous book, right? They were, 
each of them was tended. I mean, they weren't written in isolation. He had maybe the entire mythology in mind as he wrote it, but by no means did he sit down and write one chapter after another. He wrote them separately, and and it's you know it, there's it may not even be necessarily safe to assume that he always had a consistent um, 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 single monolithic picture of how Arda functions as in mind as he wrote each story. It could be that he changes his mind as he writes them about the, you know maybe fundamental structures and stuff. Um, right. I don't know. I, I start. I've I've been inspired to wonder these things after MythCon. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Um, especially since, as you say, you know, there are there there are there are differences. As none of these uh, these stories are not uh, necessarily in the same state, and we do have to recall, as you say, Dave, that the you know the Silmarillion as a collection of you know as a work doesn't really exactly exist that it's um it's it's this volume this book that we're holding was put together by uh by Tolkien and by his son Christopher um based upon all of the multiple multiple versions of these stories that Tolkien had written throughout his life and they didn't always choose the same versions that is sometimes earlier versions of things stuck sometimes later versions of things stuck sometimes they have to kind of combine things together and and fill gaps that are there it's complicated um but at the same time i don't think i don't think it's necessarily i don't think that that necessarily explains this that is this is a moment and this, I think, really was always a moment, um, even in the, er- you know, in the early version of the stories and the later version of the stories, this is always a moment where the Valar intervene, or at least where a Valar intervenes, that is Ulmo. And that is a choice that I think is fairly consistent. And I don't think that we can say, well, there's, you know, the, the you know, Ulmo's all over this and he wasn't before. And so that's evidence that, you know, Tolkien is just thinking about the relationship between the Valar and, um, and Middle-earth totally, you know, quite differently in this chapter than he was in other chapters. There might be some ways in which that's true, but I don't think that that's an explanation for this. We've seen Olmo intervening before, especially with Turgon. And uh, so not only is Turgon the most, you know, sort of westward-oriented of all of them, um, also he's the one who's been receiving assistance from Olmo and messages from Olmo. Um, And we see that, obviously, most emphatically here. Um, But... um, so, yeah, it's 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 difficult, but I think that we still can see. Um, it, I think that we it's still okay for us to read this from within a kind of continuity of it, and I think that you can see that you know one of the ways in which this story has been changed in its uh, in its extreme shortening um, of from other versions is that. Um, well, it's still being kept, being deliberately kept consistent with the others, um, with the other chapters that, that we've seen. Certainly being kept consistent by Christopher, um, but several of you have been have been very patient. Uh, Joe, go ahead. All right. Um, you sort of covered this earlier. This is more upon like a free will and predestination. Uh, I, you just see like a wonderful mix of it here. Um, even going back to where uh, Olmo had a uh, Turgon make the armor. I mean, because it's like. They knew, like, through events that, you know, the elves would not win the Nunaitha Nuriad. I mean, just, uh, he knew that wasn't going to happen, and like you said, he knew Tuor was going to be there, but just, you pointed out examples in both Tuor and Turin's life of 
free will. I mean, mm-hmm. you just see this awesome mix of predestination and free will where these choices come in, and then again, like, there is a path going on here that something is going to happen. And uh, and you kind of know it because nothing can be done without the valor, like we pointed out before, which is pointed out, again, by the armor. I just, you just see it work so well, and it's put together so well here. I mean, it's, it's like a perfect example to look at if you're ever really confused about how it works in Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I think that with Tor, he is going to have choices. And Turgon is going to have, I think, choices. Um, and I, But yet, throughout this story, you have this... Uh, this this destiny and Tuor isn't Tuor isn't the only one who has this sort of thing laid on his heart. Uh, remember, Idril is going to have a similar kind of experience uh, later on in the story. But let's not jump ahead too much here. Uh, Jack, go ahead. Yeah, the um, getting back to Tuor, the conversation's kind of moved on, but I'll try yeah, to okay. tie it in. Uh, the uh, you know his personality does he have a weak personality? I don't think so because you know it says you know. He was mighty in stature and in mind, and and clearly he was beloved by almost everybody. So this is clearly somebody that doesn't have a weak personality. Mm-hmm. However, I, is it unfair? Is it unfair to say that maybe he's a little boring? Tour? Um, not quite. Yeah, not quite a three-dimensional character. And could that also account for why he's not developed as much uh, compared to say uh, Turin, and not given the same page count? He's just too. He's just too good. He's not interesting. Well, it's interesting. I mean, he certainly is not. We don't get the kind of complexity that we get with Turin, and I think I think that's fair. I mean, again, on the one hand, I have a hard time because this is so much shorter a version of his story than Turin. Um, given how quickly we're going through all of these events of his life, um, it would be hard to get close to Tuor here and to really kind of see the inner workings of his mind in the ways that we do get to with Turin, for better or for worse. Um, but there's no question, you're absolutely right, that char- the, the character of Turin, I do all, I, I find a really compelling one. And even when he was, you know, annoying us at various times with the choices that he makes, um, he is still, he is still certainly, um, as you say, an interesting and rounded character. We can see his motivations. We can understand where he's coming from. We can see how all of these different factors um, within him and his background and his choices are all working together. And with Turin, we don't, or with Tuor, rather, we don't really get that. And that's true. Um, but and you know, I but I think I think part of that is a reflection of the brevity of the story. But but I don't think all of it is. I mean, I think, you know, Jack, in part, you are right. He is he is he is the vehicle of destiny. Um, and it's not really about him. Turin's story, in as much as he is, you know, although he still talks like and feels like he is a helpless victim, or he's determined not to be a helpless victim. Um, instead, he's going to go around victimizing everybody else. But nevertheless, he... He is the centerpiece. Him, he, and his personality are the centerpiece of the story. Tour is not in anything like the centerpiece of his story, even though the chapter title would lead us to believe otherwise. Of Tour and the fall of Gondolin. Yet, in a sense, you could say this story isn't really all that interested in Tour for most of the time. Um, not personally, Jack, in the way that you were describing um, that we do get with with Turin. Um, Instead, it's about what he accomplishes and what he does um, and what is done through him. 
and he is the instrument. He is almost instrument in that story. Um, but Chris, go ahead. I know you were you were uh, wanting to t- uh, talk about something. I, I think about Tour's early career. Is that right? Well, it's this is just a very very quick comment. In other characters in the story that we've seen who spent a lot of time alone, like Melkor and Fionor and Ale, they that seems to be a a huge negative, whether cause or effect, of uh, their personality with uh, Tour. I thought it was interesting that uh, he didn't. That negative consequence didn't come out from spending huge amounts of time alone. Not, I guess, not terribly uh, important, but just I thought that was an interesting, interesting difference. I agree. I think that's a really good point because um, it is, it is remarkable that Tour does spend all that time alone, and yet. Not only does he not fall into that same pattern, he's almost the opposite of the pattern that we see. Solitariness has tended to be associated with pride. Um, you know, people, uh, those who separate themselves from other people, as you said, like Ale, like Melkor, um, even like Feanor, um, these these people who separate themselves away are tend to be doing it because they are. Um, because they're thinking of themselves, because they 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 are uh, you know they're kind of turning inwards uh, in ways that other people are not, and that's a bad thing. Ale is clearly doing that. Melkor is clearly doing that at the beginning. But remember, there's there's a okay, and pay attention here, guys. There's a pop quiz for you. Who else have we seen? What other majorly important figure in the Silmarillion have we seen who seeks solitariness? who separates himself from others and yet is not marked by pride, but rather by humility. <laughs> Jason's got it, I think. <laughs> meme, says Jordan. No, not meme. Not meme. Uh, Mike says, Nienna, to some extent, to some extent, um, though she doesn't, she doesn't exactly separate herself. We get her own halls and things, but she is also still associated uh, with her with her brothers the uh, the Feanturi, um with Mandos and and Lorien. Um I was thinking uh, with uh, with with Jason uh, Olmo and at the time when we were looking at that we were talking about how sort of unusual that seemed that when Olmo separates himself he doesn't he's the only one of the major figures in the Valor who doesn't even live in Valinor he doesn't hang out with him at all he holds himself aloof. And is this sort of secretive and solitary character. And it's not just that he lives alone, because we learn that he acts alone too. That is, he does not follow the counsel of the rest of the Valar. He does not... um, uh, he, he 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 just doesn't play along. He disagrees with them. He acts independently of them. And yet... This isn't a sign of evil in him. This isn't a sign of pride in him, it seems. At least, and we were noticing how strange that seemed at the time. And yet it's an interesting parallel to notice here, isn't it? That the agent of Olmo, the instrument of Olmo, is following a very similar pattern in his life. He, too, is living alone. For most of his life, he's living alone, other than that time of fosterage. Um... And and we're not even just talking about, you know, without companions. Turin was rarely without companion. Um, you know, he usually had Beleg or Gwyndor or somebody. Um, and yet, here is Tour living in the wilderness like a hermit, um, like an outlaw. Well, he is an outlaw, he's not just like an outlaw. 
And yet, the response is not his response to that is not pride, but like Olmo, it's humility. And I just, I, I, I think that that's um, I think that that's very I think it's very interesting. But Chris, I, I think that you I'm glad that you brought that up, because that is a um, that is a very noteworthy thing I think about about Tour's career. Um, well, let's uh, let's we've been we and we've been kind of jumping around a little bit, but let's let's move up to let's move up to Gondolin. Um, oh, I should I should mention this was another thing that was uh, kind of skipped over in um, in the short version of the story here. But it's one detail that I can't, I said we weren't going to talk about the Book of Lost Tales, and I won't go into too much detail. Um, but I will just mention the fact that you know that 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 one brief encounter with Turin. Um, but even as they gazed, but even as they gazed upon it, that is the pools of Ivrin. Um, they saw one going northward in haste, and he was a tall man clad in black and bearing a black sword. But they knew not who he was, nor anything of what had befallen in the south, and he passed them by, and they said no word. Now, here is the moment, the one moment, when the actual careers uh, of Tuor and Turin cross. Of course, we should recognize Turin here. He's got his black sword here. Tuor actually lays eyes on Turin from a distance, and their paths literally cross each other here at this moment. They're going in different directions, and they're doing different things. Now, this seems to me, I cannot help but think, a very clear and open invitation to do some comparison and contrast, so I am keen not to resist that opportunity. Um, first, recall, where are they? Um, where, where, is, where is Turin going when we he's going to hit them, isn't he? Yes, he save is. His parent, his family, right? Or he thinks he's going to see them. But yes, exactly. So he is going up, and 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 more more of the circumstances of that. What what should we recall about this trip north by Turin? Orion kind of sent him. He should have been. He should have gone after uh, uh whatever that elf one's name is. Fenduelas. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yes, he should have been going after her, but he wasn't. Uh, so he kind of... This is when he was clearly going on the path towards his destruction, really. Uh, yes. Um, kind of like... He, th- that's where he clearly chose to where he kind of screwed up, and then he finds the pools of Ivrin where they're standing later, and uh, they're frozen up. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, that, that was before that, actually. I, I don't remember when that was, but you get my point. Yes. It is, this is the result of Glaurung's lies, right? Exactly. Exactly. Why is Turin going? Well, you know... One way we could put it is to say that Glaurung has laid it on Turin's heart to go to Hithlum, um, and he's going. Um, now, he is being manipulated for evil, while Tuor is being manipulated for good. Um, but there is an interesting, well, sort of a parallel, sort of an anti-parallel there between the two of them. Um, but yeah... Uh, it, Joe, exactly the terms that you were using there I think are really important. This is the moment, as we discussed before, this seems to be the moment in Turin's life where it is officially over. His destiny is coming upon him now. We are told if we are to believe Gwyndor's prophecy in Nargothrond, if he goes and saves Fenduelas' life, he might possibly still avoid his destiny. But having instead listened to Glaurung and been deceived by Glaurung's lies and now headed up to Hithlum, which is where Tuor meets him, or sees him anyway, now his doom is sealed. Tuor, going in the other direction, not exactly opposite, but, you know, coming, crossing his path at 90 degrees, is um, also 
in the moment of fulfilling his destiny. This this trip that Tuor is that Tuor is taking is also the trip of his destiny. And we saw him sort of delaying his destiny. And, uh, you know, in other longer versions of the story, Tolkien emphasizes even more the kind of... I don't want to say lounging around is not quite quite right, but that sentence that I read about his about his uh, his realizing that he had stayed over long, um, and then the swans come and he's and he knows it for a sign that he's supposed to get the heck out of there and get moving and stop just kicking around Nevrast uh, in the way that he was. Um, he needed to go and embrace his destiny, and he did. And now he is on the he is on the trip which is sealing his fate, um, which is going to bring about the fulfillment of his of his job, of his of his of his of his destiny, just as Turin is on the way to fulfill his horrible destiny. Laura, go ahead. Um I was away for a little bit, so I apologize if somebody already said this, but um you know with all these with all these elves especially and even uh, Turin not listening to the Valar you know Tuar really uh, really uh, makes himself stand out by actually listening to one of the Valar and actually you know seeing the signs and not just saying ah you know I don't need to follow those silly signs you know Uh, he's the only one who's really open to being guided by the Valar yeah and he is and he is guided by the Valar. Um, and again, again, Alma is all over this story. You know, he didn't just lay it on his heart in the beginning, and he doesn't just lead him into Vinyamar, and doesn't just appear to him in person and speak to Tuor. I mean, we haven't seen that. Even Turgon didn't get Olmo appearing to him in person. We kind of skipped over that moment, but that's a really important moment. Um, there came a great storm out of the west, the top of page 239. And out of that storm, Olmo, the Lord of Waters, arose in majesty and spoke to Tuor as he stood beside the sea. And Olmo bade him depart from that place and seek out the hidden kingdom of Gondolin. And he gave Tuor a great cloak to mantle him in shadow from the eyes of his enemies. So even the whole path of Tuor, he is concealed by Olmo. And just in case we've forgotten that, we're reminded of that, the paragraph after, you know, the, the a couple, two paragraphs down the page. And at last, by the power of Olmo set upon them, they came to the hidden door of Gondolin. Um, at every step along the way, uh, Tuor is, 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 is with Olmo. Uh, Laura, go ahead. I just was wondering if if Olmo had actually appeared to Turin, do you think you would have listened to him? I think it would be hard for anyone to ignore uh, Olmo appearing in majesty. But I, but I mean, you were right to 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 be reminding us that it's not just that one of them is is sort of uh, responsive to the Valar and the other is not. We're talking both of them receive messages from Olmo. Um, and Turin disregards his message. Well, okay, no, see, um, but uh, hang on, I'm being sloppy. I'm being sloppy. If we were at Mythconvro and Flieger would be smacking me down right now. Turin is not the one who receives the message from Omo. Oradreth, remember, receives the message from Omo, though we talked about the sort of, I think, pointedly ambivalent phrasing there, that the message comes to the Lord of Nargothrond, which should be Oradreth, but in practice is actually Turin. Um, but uh, but anyway, uh, Tuor unquestionably does personally receive this message from Omo. But, but Laura, again, I, I, you're right. We can see that 
they're in a completely different place. Turin, uh, you know, where was where was Olmo appearing in person? Where was Olmo laying it on laying it on Turin's heart? Um, we didn't see that. But, you know, it's possible to think about this in a different way. That is, we didn't see this before, perhaps in part because Turin is the one who's responding. Um, has has Olmo ever laid anything on anybody else's heart to do? And they just ignored it, and, and they didn't do it, and they refused to do it? Um, but, you know, that, I think, is possible. We see that happen, you know, we see them being disregarded at various other points. Tour, Tour's story unfolds the way that it does, you know, with the power of Olmo set upon him and all that, in part because he obeys and does what he's supposed to do. Laura? Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, if it was Turin, he would be obviously overwhelmed at the time, but you can see, or you can imagine that he might try to subvert uh, Olmo's uh, wishes to his own. You know that that his uh, his ego would would kind of get in the way where it doesn't it doesn't that doesn't happen with Tour. Yeah, yeah. No, and again, I think that's that's where we can see certainly Tour is. You know, we you know, and Jordan gave his excellent paper on pride uh, uh, at MythCon, and I think in Tour we see one of the clearest examples of the contrary. Tour is a humble character. Um, compared, I know I was about to say compared to Turin, but who isn't really compared to Turin? I guess Feanor is probably more proud than Turin is, but um, but Tour, I think in Tour we do get an example of a genuinely humble character, and one of the ways in which we see that humility um, manifested is in basically his submission. He goes along, he does what he's told, he is obedient. And, you know, and Jack, I come back to the point that you made before. Um, submission and obedience doesn't make for a really fiery and interesting character. Um, it is because his own personality is not at the center of his actions um, that he ends up doing so well. But that does make him a, sort of a less interesting character to think about and to read about. Joe? I was going to talk about uh, Almo actually did kind of, he, he didn't really put anything in Torin's heart, but he cleansed Torin of the pools of Ivrin. I mean, he, he did work in him. Um, I mean, it, it's, I mean, it mentions, you know, the waters of Olmo cleansing him of that, and I, I don't remember if it really said, he, I don't think he really spoke to him or anything like that, but I mean, he, he, he gave him the chance to really realize, hey, I'm trying to help you out here. I'm trying to help you do these good things. I mean, I just kind of healed you of your insanity for killing your best friend. I mean, yes. let me help you out. And then, I mean, you know, he comes back to him later, like, hey, it's me again. Um, You should stop doing this, and you know, that's Turin's pride, kind of like, eh, no thanks. Yes, no, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, Turin's response is like, it's okay, I got this, right? I, I you know, Nargothron, you're telling me how to defend Nargothron, please. You know, I've got this. I've got myself a, a, a good army. Um, you know, have you seen me fight? Please. You know, I got this. Um but Joe, I mean, that's a fantastic point, and I know you were really great on the pools of Ivern when we were doing the Turin story, and you were right to remember that, especially since, of course, we're given a reminder of it here in Turin story because that's near the place where the two of them cross paths. Um, and you know, you could say, in a sense, that that you know, you could look at the pools of Ivern as as itself kind of emblematic of the of the divergence in the paths of the careers of Tuor and Turin. That is, their two responses to it. Joe, as you say, Turin has the opportunity but is but he leaves it behind 
goes off to Nargothrond and then starts openly uh, defying um, Olmo, whereas Tuor has his encounter with Olmo and submits. Um, but let's go on to his to his reception in Gondolin, because um, pretty soon uh, pretty soon Dave is going to start demanding another week if we're not careful here. Nick, go ahead. Yeah, um, just wanted to comment on, I found it interesting how Turgon um, abandons almost Kroll for the end. I mean, he, he listens to him at first, and almost directs him to find him in building gun, and he thus inspires Kroll to flee the battle in order to keep gun in safe. And then he hesitates to let her in after he leaves Angband, and then finally he ignores almost all in the end. He even recalls being told, love not too well the work of thy hands and thy heart. And, um, and it, it simply says he became prideful. He was so proud. Um, it's not the first time, although obviously he's going to ignore it. It happens. He would fall in hard with Mark through turn. Yeah. Yeah. But you think he would, um, you know, have built up some sort of trust in Elmo. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's a really great point. You know, I mean, as you say, disregarding the Valar and Olmo in particular is old hat at this point. I mean, it's cliche. Everybody's doing it. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. With Turgon, it is the most inexcusable of anybody. Turgon is the one who has had this positive relationship. He's the one, he's been doing, he's been following Olmo's guidance all along. Um, and as you say, we are, um, we are reminded, you know, it, it, Let's. It, it's the one thing that is explicitly re-quoted. Um, that that is the warning that Olmo gave him before. Love not too well the work of thy hands and the devices of thy heart, and remember that the true hope of the Noldor lieth in the west and cometh from the sea. Um, uh, Olmo says that to him in Vinyamar, in preparation for this moment, and this is the message that Tuor has 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 been sent to give him, and. It's not like there's skepticism here. It would be one thing if Tuor comes to Turgon and Turgon's response is, oh, I don't think you are really from Olmo. You are some kind of imposter. This is a lie of Morgoth. Because you know what? That's perfectly plausible. Uh, like, you know, you could totally see that. But that isn't it. And he knows it's not it because he knows he's wearing the armor that, uh, in some versions of the story, Turgon himself made and left in Vinyamar. There is no doubt in Turgon's mind that this dude was sent by Olmo to him. So that... Um, also, go ahead. This also seems to be sort of out of character for Turgon. Like, he's the one who's most turning to the West and sending ships out. Like, he remembers the last half of the warning, but then ignores the first half. It just seems such a bizarre character change for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we have seen, as as Nick was reminding us, we have seen a bit of a progression uh, in Turgon. And, you know, we saw that on the one hand, he he went to Gondolin and he closed it up. He came out, that is, he and his whole army came out to the near Nithar. Arnoidiad. So although they were still a secret place and they were still keeping to themselves, um, they were willing to march out in force to join in at the great battle and not to uh, and not to abandon um, their kinsmen. Then they go in and they say, we're never coming out again. And so now, like, OK, that policy has changed. You know, we're n- never again are we going to march out to battle. So now that's different. And then remember the the passage that we looked at uh, last time 
briefly when Hurin comes out and is is yelling to him, and Turgon says in that passage that we we emphasized, uh, you know, my heart is shut, but it's only shut briefly, and then he opens, um, and then he opens his his it tries to open his heart again and go get him, but he's but but is already too late. Um, but now we see the policy of the Gondolindrum has since changed more. Right below that, this is on page 240, where we are, where the, those words are recalled, and we're told that he be, he has become proud. Um, uh, you could see. Okay, let's let's actually just start from that start from that sentence. Uh, so from five lines in of that second paragraph. But Turgon was become proud, and Gondolin as beautiful as a memory of Elven Tyrion, and he trusted still in its secret and impregnable strength, though even Ovala should gainsay it. And after the near ninth Arnoidiad, the people of that city desired never again to mingle in the woes of elves and men, without, nor to return through dread and danger into the west. Shut behind their pathless and enchanted hills, they suffered none to enter, though he fled from Morgoth hate pursued, and tidings of the lands beyond came to them faint and far, and they heeded them little. Um, so we see it's like the heart of all of the gaunt, of the Gondolindrum is 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 shut now. I mean that uh, that sentence is sort of sad, you know that uh, they suffered none to enter, though he fled from Morgoth hate pursued. Um, uh, that's that, that's uh, that's tough, Dave. Well, I was just going to add that he is um, his pride and trust in the um, secret of Gondolin. You know, they say that even though a, a Valor should gain it, but it's not just the gainsay of a valor. It's also against evidence from past history where people have found the city and then gone back out again. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's almost absurd that he thinks it's still a secret at this point. Right. It's like, right. well, nobody knows where it is. Well, except for those one guys. Um, but we won't worry about them. You know, right. and, and the other... The, the, so, if I recall correctly from Turin Turambar, Thorondor brings him news of Hurin standing in the wilderness, near where Gondolin is, shouting, Hey, Turgon, can't you hear me? And he doesn't think that Morgoth, you know, was following him and can put two and two together. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and of course, I mean, as, uh, and this is, this is a point that, um, that my students often make when, uh, when I'm teaching the Silmarillion, is like, doesn't he think that eventually Morgoth is going to figure out by process of elimination the general region where Gondolin is? Um, I mean, like when you look at the map, that's there, right. There it's the, that one, places where it's the one place where his when his orcs go in there, eagles keep swooping down and killing them. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I mean, sure, Hurin reveals to him the region, but again, how hard was that? Um, no, I mean that's easy to say, but I, but but uh, um, but yes, I agree. It is, it is, it is, it is vain. It is obviously vain. It is transparently vain to just trust in the secrecy of Gondolin, um, and especially, of course, the, the, it's pointedly ironic when he says, "Lest a valor should gainsay it." And you know, maybe. Maybe we, you know, are remembering somebody like Feanor there, who set himself up against Avala, that is against Morgoth himself, and believed that he could take down Avala, believed that he could overcome, um, you know, one of the, the, you know, the mightiest creature in all of, you know, creation, at least originally, um, and we saw that that was that was kind of a silly belief in the end. Um, well, act, no, heck, from the beginning, it was a silly belief. But here, this is not. 
no matter even if Morgoth himself comes, we will be able to we will be able to keep our place impregnable. That's not what he's saying there. Morgoth is not the Vala in question. Olmo is the Vala in question. He is saying, Olmo the Vala has sent me a message and said, Get out. Gondolin is gonna fall soon. Leave Gondolin behind. And then and so he says, uh, he trusted still to its secret and impregnable strength, though even Avala should gainsay it. Not even though even Avala should come against it, though even Avala should gainsay it. So even if Olmo says it's going to fall, I think Olmo's wrong because Gondolin is that strong. And it's, it's again, it's the more pointedly ironic on what does he base his confidence in the secrecy of Gondolin? In the Valar, in the Eagles of Manway, and in the secret of Olmo, he built Gondolin in obedience to Olmo's words. Olmo was the one who said, hey, great idea. I've got a great idea. Build, you know, build this city. Take your people. He appears to him in the dream. He appears to him in Vinyamar. He gets instructions. He's doing this under the instructions of Olmo. When the dude who instructed him to build this in order to be safe says, okay, the time has come. Told you it was going to come. Now is the time. Here's my messenger dressed in the armor that I told you to leave for him. Now go. For at that point, Torgan to say, eh, wh- but what the heck does Olmo know, really, please? You know, I mean, I, I so know better than he. Um, crazy. That's just, that's just, uh, I, I mean, I agree. Uh, uh, this is, I think, although we don't get the kind of buildup with Turgon, we don't get the kinds of uh, sort of career trajectories of pride um, leading to destruction that, you know, Jordan in his paper was pointing out about Thingol and Feanor. We, this, this one moment is, I think, one of the most almost sort of ludicrous instances of pride that we see in the whole Quenta. Joe? This is kind of moving on to a different topic. Is there anything else anybody wants to say about that? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I'll move on. I'll move on. Now, um, this is kind of getting back to the character of Tuor. um, You see uh, his character really paying off here, like him being humble. uh, I mean, it says he remained in Gondolin, and uh, he became mighty in stature and in mind. I mean, he basically almost... Maybe not quite, but grew up to the stature of Turin, and uh, I mean, um, he learned about the lore, and then the king's daughter wants to be with him, and then Turin's like, "Sure, go ahead." And he marries the elf that uh, Turin missed, and that get killed. I mean, that gets speared to a tree. I mean, he he gets blessed with that kind of, and uh, just um, you see, kind of <laughs> just how the humbleness of him and him not focusing on himself more so is paying off for him, and uh, really just. His path is really working out, leading towards his future. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think you know, Joe, that's a great point, and and you can see the irony there, right? Turin, for for Turin, the elf maiden who loved him was his possible way out of his destiny, um, and when he did not get together with the elf maiden, when he basically chose not to be baron to her Luthien. He uh, that's when his his career was was done. That was that was the final tipping point of his career with tour. It's like it works backwards. Right. Having done the right thing, having achieved his good destiny and been humble and submitted to his destiny. The consequence of that is the elf maiden. She's not the instrument. Um, She is. Uh, she. It's not, not exactly like the reward, though, because, of course, even see what I just said is not quite right. It's not that she is she is the instrument of his destiny because it turns out, of course, that being Olmo's messenger 
is not the fulfillment of his destiny, it's the setup for his destiny. You know, and that Omo has much more in mind than just, I think I'm going to send this dude to Gondolin and he's going to be my chosen messenger. Um, you know, I needed somebody and uh, so, here we, uh, so here we go, I'm, it's going to be this guy. When he gets to Gondolin, yes, he delivers, he delivers Omo's message, but what he's really going to Gondolin for, what his real role is, is to marry Idril and be the father of Eärendil, as we saw in his dad's in Huor's prophecy. From you and from me a new star shall arise. And Turgon remembers that. And Turgon realizes, and that again is sort of the final irony, um, sort of the final, you know, I hate to say it, but the final stupidity of two, of Turgon's choice um, to to reject the, 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 the teaching of Olmo here, um, the message of Olmo is that he still treats Tuor. He realizes that Tuor is bound up with the fate of Gondolin. He realizes that Tuor is important. So I know that he's really sent by Omo. He is obviously an agent of destiny for Gondolin, so I'm going to show favor to him. I'm going to listen to like everything else that he says. I am going. So I'm going to allow him to become one of my central counselors. I'm going to let him become my son-in-law and marry my daughter, become the second human being ever to marry an elf woman. But, you know, I'm just, oh, whatever, I'm going to ignore Olmo's message that he's bringing, but, uh, you know, the rest of that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, to, to take into account. Uh, th- that's just, that's crazy. Um, now, Jack, I want to come back to the point that you made in our, in our class notes, because I think that that's, a, that that's a really fantastic point. That is, we get three, we get three human beings, three human men who marry elven women. Baron, now Tuor, and later on we'll get Aragorn. And, uh, Jack, you were sort of talking about how Tuor seems to be in a really different category from either Aragorn or Baron in that way. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, I just find it almost um, humorous, um, like you say, of the, th- of the three men that marry el- elves. Um, Aragorn and Baron, they have to go through hell um, to achieve um, that honor. Yes. Um, Aragorn has to become the king of not one kingdom but two. High king unite two kingdoms, and Baron has to go off and get a Silmaril out of the out of the very iron crown of of, of Morgoth. Uh, just two almost impossible things. But when it comes to uh, Tuor, um, Turgon just practically like picks up his daughter and and puts him in Tuor's arms. Yeah, yeah. No, and and you know that's a great point. Brief semi-digressional point about Aragorn there, because I think that that parallel, you know, when you when you look at that parallel in that way, it is really interesting. Um, one is one might be tempted when one looks at the story of Aragorn and Arwen as it is told in the in Appendix A of the Return of the King. Um, one might be tempted to see Elrond as you know, I mean, he is in the and he knows that he is in the role of Thingol there, right? That you know that there's this mortal man um, who is in love with his daughter and wants to marry his daughter. He knows how this works. But there's a big difference in what the conditions that Elrond places upon Aragorn's marrying Arwen and the conditions that Thingol lays upon Baron's marrying of Luthien. He's, um, you're right, Jack, that it is in many ways a parallel task. I mean, essentially what he's told, what Aragorn is told is... Um, okay, if you manage to overthrow Sauron and unite the North and South Kingdoms of ancient Gondor again, then you can marry my daughter. But unlike with Thingol, this is not him just trying to throw a huge 
you know, theoretically insurmountable obstacle in the path. Um, instead, you know, Jack, I think the the way that you put your observation, the way that you put your initial point, I think is is really good. And I think that we can kind of see Elrond looking at it in this way. That is, look, this is how it's supposed to work. This 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 kind of thing doesn't just happen. Um, if you are going to be, you know, you don't just waltz up and marry an elf woman. Um, it happens through through suffering. You know, it's it is it is it is part of a larger story. And so, you know, Elrond, it's like Elrond knows the script. He knows how this is supposed to work. If you are going to marry my daughter Arwen, that moment is must can oh, that can only happen if it is the culmination of your long and heroic story so you have to go through the darkness you have to go through the suffering you have to go through this very painful and extremely difficult task um in order to get there because only at that point is it going to be what it should be only at that point is it going to be um only at that point is it going to be fitting? Is it going to be right? And so I agree with Jack that Tuor's marriage of Idril seems different. Uh, not quite anticlimactic, but certainly compared to Baron and Aragorn's careers, um, he has made good choices. It's not like to say that he hasn't accomplished anything, um, but all he did was come to Gondolin and deliver a message. Um, and again, I think this is a place where we can see him as the instrument uh, of destiny. But Laura, go ahead. I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but um, you know, also uh, we find out at the end of the chapter that Tuor actually becomes an elf. He becomes counted uh, with the Eldar. Yes. And um, you know, that's another that's another piece of his humility. You know, he's willing to go along with his wife. You know, unlike the elves who don't seem to listen to their wives here, yes. single doesn't listen anyway. Um, you know, he he really doesn't put himself ahead. He puts other people's wishes ahead of ahead of his own. And and in that way too, it's different from what happened with Aragorn and uh, Baron, where you know both of their wives chose to become mortal, and uh, the Valar did not uh, offer offer that choice uh, to the men in those cases. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's certainly that is the huge difference. Um, I mean, there's it's not it's not just the circumstances, the entire nature of the relationship, the whole like metaphysical outcome of this union between elves and men is different. Um, The one thing I would emphasize about that, that we have to be careful. The text here is deliberately dodgy about Tuor's fate. Um, Worth reading that last paragraph. In those days, Tuor felt old age creep upon him, and ever a longing for the deeps of the sea grew stronger in his heart. Therefore, he built a great ship, and he named it Era- and he named it Earame, which is Sea Wing. And with Idril Calabrindal, he set sail into the sunset and the west, and came no more into any tale or song. But in after days it was sung that Tuor alone of mortal men was numbered among the elder race, and was joined with the Noldor whom he loved, and his fate is sundered from the fate of men. But in after days it was sung that Tuor alone of mortal men. But we don't know. We don't know for sure. Nobody sees him again. If he's off being immortal somewhere, if he is joined to elves, where is he? With Olmo? Um... 
Ever a longing for the deeps of the sea grew stronger in his heart. Um, and that echoes the language that we get at the beginning of the chapter. Um, and looking upon Belagair, the great sea, he was enamored of it, and the sound of it and the longing for it was ever in his heart and ear, and an unquiet was on him that took him at last into the depths of the realms of Olmo. Sorry, Laura, go ahead. I would say if it's in song, it's got to be true, right? I mean, in Tolkien, <laughs> if you put it in a song, you know, it's 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 like uh, it's like gospel. It's it's written in stone. But you know, I thought that because uh, Ulmo uh, used him as an instrument, that he was offered this 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 choice. Um, uh, I'm getting tired too. I can't remember my point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I oh mean, well. But just to respond to the song thing, I mean, the point there is not that necessarily that we really should question that 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 it's probably not really true. Because like, you know, like just because we're singing about it doesn't make it true. But rather that you know the kind of the kind of squirrely way that the text says that we're not told definitely. Um, you know, we're not told by the narrator. Thus, Tuor was joined unto the fate of elves. But rather, we are told that the later elves believed that Tuor, and sang songs about the, the idea that Tuor was joined. But what, what we see, we see him, we know he's mortal because he's getting old. He's feeling old age creep upon him, right? So we see mortal Tuor, old mortal Tuor, setting sail. Goodbye, old mortal Tuor. And he's never heard from again. Now the elves sing that he was joined, but but it's never confirmed. It's never given that kind of um, objective um, certainty. Um, so it's just I, th- I think it's kind of interesting I, the way that's left open. Go ahead, Laura. I think you you have to let us have our happy, wishful thinking ending here. <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> For I'm once. Not, I'm not saying necessarily, you know, I'm not saying that I disbelieve it. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, really it's all a sham and he actually, they just like shipwrecked out of sight of land and, and, uh, and, and everybody died. Um, I'm not saying that that's true. Um, I'm just saying, I think that it is, it is an interesting choice to leave that kind of open, especially since assuming that's true, Tuor is completely unique as, 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 as the text says there in that last line, he alone of all men was joined to it. And the, what would that look like? What would happen to him? Well, we don't know, and we never see, because Tour's gone. Um, Dave? I, I personally, I think the shipwreck story is the truth. <laughs> Where do you find that in yes. the text, Dave? <laughs> I think he fell overboard, and the elves decided that uh-huh. this made a better story. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, poor guy, he, he was like 10 feet from land, and he fell overboard, he was so old, he drowned, and... I, I don't know, I, it's an, I can't, see, that... Dave, you would That's, not say that if Rowan Flieger were in the room, and you know it. <laughs> no, definitely not. Thankfully, I, should, I, should, I know I there's no chance. I should probably take a second to explain uh, to our other listeners who were not at MythCon. Um, we keep referring to to to, to Rowan Flieger because she was at MythCon, and uh, we were all very impressed by uh, not only by the talk that she gave, but in the very active discussion that followed after it, um, she was extremely tough in ways which I found very, very delightful. Um, she was talking about the Silmarils, and a lot of people were, were, you know, afterwards were wanting to respond to her talk by bringing forth theories. Um, so, well, I think it works like this, or I think they mean that. Um, but she was really, really tough and kept coming back and saying, 
essentially, that story that you're telling right now is a nice story, but I don't see it in the text. You're adding stuff. And what she kept challenging people very appropriately was... You know, it's so easy for us to fill in the gaps when we read these things, especially in stories like Tour, because it's, it, it, it's certainly this version of the Tour story, because it's so spare, it's so brief. I mean, we, we, you know, there's there's so many there's so many um, not holes in it in the sense of contradiction, but 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 gaps, blank spaces that are just being leaped over um, by this you know, very distantly surveying narrative, it's very tempting for us to fill in gaps and say, well, here's probably how it really happened. Here's, here's, here's probably what was actually going on. Here's what really happened to Tor and Idril. But in doing that, we are adding what we, you know, our own stuff to the text. And Verlin um, persistently refused to let people do that. And she would call them on it every time they were doing it. Um, and so that's why there's been... Um, for the rest of the weekend and kind of ever since and in the t- throughout the text chat tonight, uh, you know, it's been kind of a running joke. People keep saying, uh, you know, where is it in the text? I didn't see that in the text. Uh, and and uh, everyone is everyone is 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 quoting uh, Verlin Flieger there. Um, let, me, let me give you a little text. Um, and this this is and it's not terribly well researched. It's just a notion that this this is one of those things that, again, makes me wonder what he was doing with this version of this story, because you don't tend to see that kind of thing, like an exceptional character like that, where, where they change the rules for, right. for somebody. Like they, made it, they, they make it perfectly clear time and again, especially in the Akala Beth, they say, we're not allowed to take death away from you. you know? and, and indeed, if there were this exception of Tour, that would be a counter-argument for the Numenorians when they go and say, we want to live forever, and the Valor say, hey, we're not allowed to take that away from you. Hey, well, wait a minute, what about Tour? You know, right. What about our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Tour? You, you took it away from him. Um, and, and, and indeed, I generally think that people, um, the characters in, in Lord of the Rings and in Silmarillion, and indeed all of Tolkien's work, tend to be, when you have characters who sort of fall into a pattern, like, Baron and Tour and Aragorn, they tend to they don't tend to be glaring contradictions or characters that are just like, well, the, you know, there's these two guys who follow a certain pattern, and this other guy who, for no reason, is a complete contradiction and is the opposite. Unless, of course, maybe Tolkien was sort of changing his mind. But I feel like if there was one of these three guys who would get this exceptional treatment, it would have been Aragorn, mm-hmm. um, because he's sort of the the fulfillment of everything that is laid down in these chapters between in the unions of men and elves so um that's not direct evidence but but i but i i feel like the fact that they leave it that he leaves it so vague as you point out and that it would be such a bizarre glaring contradiction to not only the pattern that we see with other similar characters but also um uh the you know the 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 actual dictums of the valar saying we can't take death away from men that's Iluvatar's gift we're not allowed to take it away. Um, makes me think that 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 he's doing he's leaving it vague intentionally, um, and that maybe perhaps he he as he was writing this wasn't thinking yes. And I believe this is what happened to Tour that he was writing it because it was an interesting um, 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 you know story uh, right. for the elves to be telling. Right. It is it is an unusual and remarkable tradition among the elves that Tour became immortal. Um, yeah, and I and I you know in 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 one sense, you know it, he certainly is kind of dodging some things here, um, 
because there is that precedent, and only Iluvatar could do that. I mean, that's it's not, um, yeah. But you know, even even looking at their ultimate fate, are are we to read? I mean, with your with your uh, your shipwreck story there, Dave, are we are we reading um, the deeps of the sea as? meaning death like you know we're speaking euphemistically like and they've gone to be with olmo right <laughs> that means they're shipwrecked or does it or does it mean that they literally i mean do, are we to imagine that like you know tour and idril actually go you know and they're like hey we're gonna go hang out with olmo now um i i don't know it's but it's very t- I mean, we get both at the beginning and at the end of the story we get that same language that same language about the deeps of the sea, ever a longing for the deeps of the sea. Does that mean being in a ship far out to sea, you know, where it's deep? Or does it mean actually for the deeps of the sea themselves? Because that's where Omo lives, down in the deeps of the sea. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I have to jump in here. Okay. Uh, if Dave's theory is correct, then it doesn't explain Luthien. For the same should be true, then, that the, El- that the Valar can't give death to the elves. And... At the same point, it's just as likely as Dave rewrites the chapter that we could rewrite the chapter to say that as he went out looking for the deeps of the sea, Olmo went to Iluvatar and said, hey, let this guy come live with me. So if we're going to rewrite the chapter, we might as well as rewrite it however we'd like. (laughs) Uh, You know, yeah, yeah. Laura, what do you think? You want to intervene in the debate here? Yeah, here here comes the rebuttal okay. to Dave. Um, you know, I think it's just as likely that Aluvatar uh, uh, himself would have stepped in and uh, said, you know, to our, you, he was chosen by Olmo um, to to be his uh, his instrument, you know, and uh, so I would say that's pretty clear choice that he's a chosen one. And that you know, in in uh, return for doing all these things for Olmo, that he would be granted this request um, in return. And I, you know, it doesn't say that anywhere, obviously, but I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that. And also, as far as um, you know, having the the uh, you know elf or the the human man and the elf woman and the elf woman um, uh, becomes mortal. Uh, you know, in the case of Arwen and Aragorn, it's not exactly the same because Arwen has the choice to become mortal. She's a she's ha- she's half elven, so it's it's not exactly the same there. She can choose to be of the mortal race, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and there's also that other exception in um, Finrod uh, e Andreth, where you have the m- mortal woman and the elf man. Yeah. You know, and that's that's kind of an obscure uh story that's in the history of Middle Earth that a lot of people haven't read. But you know, that's another exception to the pattern. So I don't think we need to take that pattern as something that's set in stone. I think it's I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that some that there could have been a different outcome this time. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's um I mean, you're certainly right to to remember that, though. Of course, there that was not in the sense that these three that we're talking about are. Um, that is the story of the story of Andreth and Ignor is not um, is not a union in this sense because they don't get married and they and nobody's fate is changed. Andreth remains a mortal woman and Ignor remains an immortal elf and um, 
and you know he is changed and affected by it but they are not joined and their fates are not joined um so so i wouldn't for that reason i wouldn't put them in this category and in fact that's you know one of the things that finrod talks to andreth about um in that discussion you know, when they're when they're talking about that is basically the separation between the two of them like the fact that they haven't gotten together and um that even though their love for each other was mutual um in the end really it's a relationship that never happened um well, well except that uh, finrod does say um and i've forgotten his brother's name that uh, Ignor, he is waiting for her, yeah, Ignar, that he is waiting for her in the halls of Mandos. So he must have some hope that perhaps someday they will be able to, to get together. Right, right, know? no, possibly. Again, and, and, and I'm not trying to say that, again, I'm not saying to say that their love for each other isn't mutual and that they don't, they have no relationship at all. I mean, goodness knows, you know, it's it's not like Turin and Fendulis' non-relationship. Um, but they are, you know, this side of Mandos, they are not joining. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, we're not we're not given any indication that there's going to be a joining necessarily. Um, but certainly, yeah. Nobody's fate I mean, I'm just saying it's it's just something different than the typical thing that we mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think we always have to just go by. Okay, it's always an elf woman, and it's always a, a mortal man, and the elf woman always dies. You know, I don't think we need to follow that as you know, a strict pattern that's that's not going to vary or change. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it's we 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 should be careful not to not to expand that too much. But uh, um, but yeah, certainly when you take those when you take the the three big ones, um, it, uh, certainly in lots of ways for many of the reasons we've been talking about, Tour and Ijo are, are are different. But we've only got about twenty minutes left, and we haven't talked about the fall of Gondolin at all. So let's uh, let's talk about anyone want to uh, talk about Maiglin? Or the actual destruction of the city, or um, Gorfindel. I know we want to talk about Gorfindel a little bit. Anybody? Go ahead and jump in if if you have. Uh, um, well, here let me um, let me just mention in passing because I've talked about this in much uh, detail before uh, in an earlier podcast episode. One of the big questions that people have when they read this. Um, especially, you know, when Lord of the Rings fans read the Silmarillion for the first time and they get to the story of yellow-haired Glorfindel, um, who... Is it the same Glorfindel? It is indeed, thank you for asking, Dave. Yes, it's the same Glorfindel. Um, he is one of the two main captains of Gondolin. The other is Ecthelion, who kills Gothmog, Lord of Balrogs, and dies. And, um, it is... Uh, Tolkien was very explicit about the fact that he had brought him back. Um, and this was not just, not just sort of an evolutionary thing. This is not just, uh, you know, sort of Tolkien, the king of retcon, striking again, uh, having come up with a character named Gorfindel twice and, and needing to find an explanation of it. It was always an unusual thing. Um, elves don't get named after each other generally of course why would they they're immortal so i mean like you don't exactly if you're an elf you don't you know name your son after his grandfather or something because then like they're going to be hanging out together pretty soon or, or you know if they're not already so uh so no that's that's uh that that generally doesn't happen among elves um but anyway no glorfindel this is this is this is this is the same dude and especially as tolkien uh later on in his life wrote more about this to explain kind of the mechanics of this that glorfindel 
is basically given another chance to go back to Middle-earth. We know that elves, you know, their spirits do not depart Arda. When they die, their souls go to Mandos for a while and seem to have some kind of purgatorial experience over there. Uh, Feanor probably still there because he's got a heck of a lot of purgatory in front of him. Um, but Gwarfindel is let out. Know, so, and we know that they can basically make new bodies for themselves, are given new bodies, and are allowed to sort of, you know, go back out into general population in Valinor. But very few, and Glorfindel is the primary example, are not only allowed to get out of Mandos and circulate in Valinor, but actually to return to Middle-earth, because, you know, he sort of had unfinished business there in Middle-earth. and because he was really great and, you know, the self-sacrifice of his death, um, you know, he died, he died the death of a saint. And he was very, he was like the opposite of, uh, the opposite of Feanor, actually. It's kind of an interesting contrast when you think about their forms of death, um, both of them being killed by Balrogs. But boy, is there a big difference between Feanor's death by Balrog and Glorfindel's death by Balrog. Um, so, so yes, yes, they are the same. Um, the same Gorfindels. Um, other thoughts? Myglin thoughts? Um, you know, Attack of the City? I know, yeah, you know, Laura, your, your thought that the description is extremely brief. Yes, yes. Uh, Gorfindel goes down, or the, the uh, you know, Gondolin goes down pretty quickly. Oh, I was wondering, why is Turgon, he dies in a tower. Yes. It seems almost like a cowardly end for the High King of the Noldor, that he doesn't die seemingly in battle, that he dies holed up in his tower, and as it collapses, so falls he as well. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It is, it is, um, it is a, it is a remarkable passage, and I think that stylistically, um, here we go, Mike, time for style time. We haven't been doing style time enough recently, um, but I think that, uh, we 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 definitely get some. We, we should definitely have a style time moment. Um, I think that we get a stylistic clue from Tolkien to pay attention to exactly the thing that Jordan was just talking about. Um, reading the last paragraph, this is the last full paragraph on page two forty two. Of the deeds of desperate valor, they're they're done by the chieftains of the noble houses and their warriors, and not least by Tuor. Much is told in the fall of Gondolin, of the battle of Ecthelion of the Fountain with Gothmog, Lord of Balrogs, in the very square of the king, where each slew the other and of the defense of the Tower of Turgon by the people of his household, until the tower was overthrown, and mighty was its fall, and the fall of Turgon in its ruin. And we have this elevation of style here, um, and that final sort of form... Uh, I, I, I don't mean... I say formulaic. I don't mean formulaic in the sense of like, oh, it's just like fits to a pat pattern, but rather that it's... He he invokes these um, these sort of heroic formulas the repetitions that we get there until the tower was overthrown and mighty was its fall and the fall of Turgon in its ruin. Um, what we are, what is emphasized right before that of the deeds of desperate valor, they're done And Jordan's right. Okay. Turgon, where's the desperate valor? Everyone else is being desperately valiant. Where are you? Um, there's, there's Ecthelion fighting and dying in the very square of the king. We've got the defense of the Tower of Turgon by the people of his household. Now, I don't think we're supposed to understand, and in the in the previous versions, it is not that Turgon is just holed up. He is not Denethor, um, you know, hiding away and focusing on committing suicide while his city is under attack. Um, 
that's not what Turgon is doing. But yet in this one-sentence description uh, of the downfall of Gondolin here, nothing is... Sa- you know, Turgon is given in this sentence a completely passive role in direct contrast um, to the, you know, these the, the sort of carefully structured and paralleled um, other people who are being so desperately valiant. Um, what do you make of that, the collapse of his tower? If if the message here is not supposed to be, and Turgon died a coward's death and was a weenie, I don't think we're supposed to be taking that from that passage. Uh, certainly, I don't think that's supposed to be the primary message. But what do we take from it? What do you think? Joe, what do you think? Different topic. Sorry. Oh, okay. D- does anyone ha- does anyone ha- have any thoughts about Turgon and his tower? Well, I mean, Jack points out in the text, it seems like he's a captain going down with the ship, and maybe that is it, that he's sort of... I mean, it, the only argument I guess you could make is that he's overseeing the battle itself, mm-hmm. um, and that from the highest point, I assume, uh, in the city, he is attempting to strategize and win the day, and then is destroyed... Uh, while the city itself is destroyed. Yeah, certainly. And I think especially that last connection that he is destroyed while the city itself is destroyed. The collapse of the Great Tower. Um, the collapse of the Great Tower is the last, you know, sort of at least symbolically, if not literally, um, the final stage of the destruction of the city. Um, so Turgon does go down with the ship. Uh, an ironic... Um, an ironic turn of phrase in this in this chapter, especially thinking about uh, Tuor and his fate. But um, uh, Chris, you were thinking you were thinking a similar thing to uh, to Jack and to Jordan there. Yeah, I think uh, I was I was minded of uh, like uh, I'm having a brain fade here. Um, but I, directing the battle from from above that would seem reasonable. I don't think he was a, a coward. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, I think that. Um, Again, at least symbolically, he he is not. But 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 remember, Turgon going down with the ship is not noble in the way that and I don't think he's dying a coward's death. But I also don't think that he's dying the sort of noble death that a ship captain is dying under those circumstances. You know, I mean that that phrase is normally used in a sort of a complimentary way. You know, that a ship captain is doing his 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 self-sacrificial duty. Um, if he goes down with his ship. But remember, that's not... He was told the ship was going... To, he was told to get the heck off the ship. And he refused to get off the ship. Um, he didn't have to go down with his ship. In fact, his job um, was to obey and listen to Olmo and get the heck out of the ship before it went down. But he is going down with it because he was so all-fired convinced that though Avala could gain sane it, would gain say it the ship wasn't coming down and he turned out to be wrong about that um as jack says he was all in yeah yeah once he defies olmo and says i'm gonna stay he is all in and at least he does stay all in uh all the way through but um but no i mean i think that this is in a sense then i think the final emblem of his pride as well you know that he is taking refuge him taking refuge in this tower is like him stubbornly sticking to Gondolin um, until the city itself comes down around him so the the fact that his great tower built by his own hands in his great city ultimately is his cause of death I mean he is crushed within his tower as it collapses um, 
so that because you know in his sticking to Gondolin, Gondolin itself took him down. Um, seems to be um, seems to be uh, uh, certainly at the very least appropriate. Um, but uh, Joe, you wanted to talk about Maiglin. Let's do that. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say uh, it seems like uh, the curse of Aeol is fulfilled very much. So here he meets Maiglin, meets the very same end as his dad, pretty much. Uh, he, he gets tossed over the edge more so. I guess you can't really call it a punishment, even though he extremely deserved it. But, uh, yeah, because uh, Aeol said, So you forsake your father and his kin, ill-gotten son. Here you shall fail all of all your hopes, and here may you yet die the same death as I. Uh, yep. It pretty much goes just like that. <laughs> yes, yes. And remember that, um, remember that uh, when Aeol dies, he is executed after his trial. Um, he kills Arathel, his wife. Now, he wasn't trying to kill her. He was trying to kill Maeglin, which, of course, it would have been better off had he succeeded. But um, uh, he is tried and executed for murder um, in that place. And the parallel does create this sort of wonderful moment where Maeglin is not given a trial. He has committed one of the most, uh, you know, as, as we are told, one of the most notorious acts of evil in the entire First Age. Um this you know his is the most infamous of all of the betrayals by anybody in the first age and he never comes to trial um but yet we see justice is done anyway and the the fact that he is not just perishing but being punished is is strongly emphasized by that parallel is strongly emphasized by the fact that he is he ends up getting hucked off the same cliff that his dad was hucked off of um Pitched into the flames is yeah. uh, something I want to point out. Yes, yes, pitched into the flames, um, and, uh, uh, and 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 the detail, the seemingly wholly unnecessary detail of how many times he strikes the side of the cliff on his way down, uh, I I find very interesting. Mike, go ahead. Stole my thunder. No, go ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. The, I, I didn't say anything about the, it. The gra- the graphic detail of him hitting the the mountainside three times before disappearing into flames. I mean, that it's just like, okay, we get it. Punishment. <laughs> there you go. It was almost like um, Coyote versus Roadrunner Acme. Like, okay, he's really gonna <laughs> gonna hurt. This is this this is going to hurt. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Um, but again, I but I, I but I think also there's. There's more than that, too, and his body as it fell smote the rocky slopes of Amanguara thrice ere it pitched into the flames below. Um, I always feel it's a moment that leaves me kind of tantalized, you know, that I don't, I don't know what to make of it, but I feel like there's something we should make of that, um, you know, that there's some kind of significance there to the, to the striking of it three times. Um and uh, I'm not sure what it is, but it seems so unnecessary to say that, and so unlike the rest of this narrative. Um, you know, we've talked about before in previous style times. We have talked about this trend um, where we, you know, we have this narrative from far up, and then you know the nar- the narrative kind of swoops down uh, to to more precise detail. We don't get that same kind of shift here. We don't get um, the kind of. I mean, the one that's uh, jumping out in my mind uh, that was similar to this was that moment in um, in the battle before the battle of sudden flame um 
way back on page 150 when we get there came a time of winter when the night was dark and without moon and the wide plain of ardgallen stretched dim beneath the cold stars from the hill forts of the noldor to the feet of thangoradrim the watch fires burned low and the guards were few we don't get anything like that in this passage so it's not it's not like we're actually changing register and the narrative is going in a different direction it's just within the voice, within the style of that same I'm telling the story from a mile above the ground um, kind of narrative, which we get throughout this chapter, um, in the middle of that, we are given this one detail, and his body as it fell smote the rocky slopes of Amangarth thrice ere it pitched into the flames below. Um, yeah, I don't know what to do with it, but I feel like we should do something. Mike, go ahead. Perhaps another reason why you're lingering on that is the phrase uh, "cast him, cast him out." There's sort of a sort of a micro, you know, biblical thing going on here with Tuoro, Tuor and and Myglin. So you know, maybe you're you're picking up on some sort of, you know, small scale punishment that's being vetted out in a, at a in a very limited way. There's the casting out of one character by another and then some sort of vetting of punishment on top of it. Maybe mm-hmm. that's also what's coming through. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's uh what I'm what I'm thinking about. I mean, certainly it does uh we don't usually get I mean, you know, we we've been saying sort of casually that, you know, Maiguin is being punished here. But you know, that has not usually been the case. Um we have not generally seen people who do bad things necessarily get their comeuppance in this kind of obviously apparent and satisfying way. Um, That's not been the rule by any stretch. Um, So it's kind of interesting that we seem to get that sort of satisfaction here. I think that it's, um, we shouldn't just take it for granted. Joe? (laughs) All right. uh, This is kind of moving further down that paragraph to where it talks about the fumes and the burning. Um, you know, it says, uh, the fume of the burning and the steam of the fair fountains of Gondolin withering in the flame of the dragons of the north fell upon the veil of Tumladen in mournful mist. Uh, just, it seems like uh, the emotion in that in that is just, like, extreme. And uh, it's, it's like, it, it reminds me of, like, the very beginning, Alma describing how, like, beautiful, like, the mist and the rain was and everything connected to water. And here again, you see, even through, like, the morning of the water coming down in the mist and the misery of everything being destroyed... I mean, the mist comes down and aids the escape of everybody. Just uh, the emotion and almost the beauty of that sad, those sad few sentences just really kind of captured my attention. That is fantastic, Joe. That is my favorite comment of the whole night so far. You're absolutely right. Um, remember first that Gondolin was associated with fountains from the beginning. Uh, the original name that Tur- that Turgon gave it was the you know the 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 rock of the music of water. Um, so it's been associated with its fountains all the way along. And so this image of the flames of the flames, destroying Gondolin and the flames of the, of the dragons consuming it. Um, and encountering these fountains and the mist from, from that rising up does look like on sea. Look, the beauty of Gondolin is destroyed, but Joe, you're exactly right to recall what happens when, because Melkor has devised heat intemperate, as part of his discord that he introduced to the music, well, as Iluvatar tells Olmo, um, you know, our protagonist of this chapter, Olmo, um, the 
it has not, you know, the extremes of cold and heat have not destroyed the beauty of Olmo's domain, that is, of the water, because from them comes the snowflake, and from them comes the rainfall and the mist. Um, and, and, you know, the beauty of his realm is increased by it. And I think that that is a memory here. And as you say, it is the, it is the, the mist itself becomes the instrument to preserve the tool by which the instruments of Olmo's will and the prophecy, the fulfillment of Huor's prophecy are preserved. Um, I, I think that that's, that's a, that's a, that's a really great thing to remember. Well, we are out of time and we leave with the seven-year-old Eärendil, uh, leaving with his mom and dad out of, out of Gondolin and going down to the, to Balar, to the Isle of Balar, where now we have the last enclave. Now everything has fallen. We had, you know, at first we had, you know, all of, um, all of Beleriand ruined after the Battle of Sudden Flame and only these three islands left, um, within, Within Beleriand, we had Nargothrond and Doriath and Gondolin, and in three consecutive chapters, we've seen all of them destroyed. So now we have one final settlement. All of those realms which we, uh, which you guys read with so much fascination and interest in of Beleriand and its realms, are now all reduced to this one combined people. You've got the remnant of Círdan, the shipwright, and his people are down there. You've got the refugees from Doriath who come down. Uh, with Elwing, uh, and now we have the uh, the refugees from Gondolin coming down there too, and that's the last settlement of elves, uh, sort of the last large scale peaceful settlement of elves uh, in Beleriand at all right now, and that's where we will begin our final story of Eärendil, um, the greatest of the heroes in all of Tolkien's Legendarium. This he is the great the greatest of all the heroic figures in all of Tolkien's stories, Eärendil. Um, so when we will, we will look at him next week. And yes, Mike, as you say, they go down the river Syrian. That is the river that is sacred to Olmo. Again, there's, there's no, Olmo's fingerprints are on like every paragraph of this chapter. Um, okay. Excellent. Thanks everybody. Uh, I look forward to, uh, we will actually finish the Quintus Ilmerillion next week. Uh, that's kind of amazing to contemplate. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to uh, we're going to say good night now, um, and uh, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Um, and uh, uh, sorry again for interrupting the uh, Mythgard show. <laughs> That's and uh, but we will we will get a chance to get back to that. Um, so uh oh yeah one final uh one final sort of plug and apology I'll give if anyone is listening who's been uh trying to go to the Mythgard site tonight. The Mythgard Institute website was down briefly. We had a transition. We have a new version of the Mythgard site up and it um it is now up and the email is working again and our form is fixed. A couple of people were trying to apply to the for the uh master's degree course and were not able to connect to the form. That's fixed now. So as far as I know, everything is now working properly. So if you had any troubles before, um go back and try it again. Alright. Well thanks everybody and we will see you next week. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and will continue to listen to the future podcasts which should be coming faster than this one. I'll admit, I have held up the process. I want to thank you all for taking this journey with us. It was always a blast recording these things, and I hope you all enjoy them as well. On behalf of the Silmarillionaires, this is Joe Stoll. Take care, everybody.
Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.